You're listening to DraftKings Network. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Today's episode is powered by Venmo and PayPal. Look, No matter how your favorite team did this season, there's still one way to feel like a winner, and that's with Venmo and PayPal. That's because you can choose to use Venmo or PayPal to add money to DraftKings in a few taps. You can even transfer your balance if you have one. So the next time you get paid back for dinner, drinks, or tickets to the game, you've got the option to put the money right back into your DraftKings account. Hundreds of millions of people use Venmo and PayPal already, and there's never been a better time to join them. Don't have a Venmo or PayPal account yet? Don't sweat it. Choose your way to pay and download the app to get started. Venmo and PayPal are not a valid deposit withdrawal methods in Connecticut or Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to another very vulnerable South Beach session. I love my vulnerability to be exposed in front of everybody while the people here eat giant sandwiches. I see that Jeremy is back there taking big giant bites out of a wrap. And that's how I like to crack open the soles of my friends and the people we're talking to around here. Pablo Torre, I want to say that this is trying to tell people who you are. But what I'm really going to do at the beginning of this is explain to you for the first time that you were on our show for a number of times with the name Pablo Torre. And I thought to myself, this person is clearly Hispanic. (laughs) And then I met you and I'm like, what is he? (laughs) Because I did not know your nationality. I don't know your family history. I don't know... Uh, the roots of how it is that you got into this. I assume, by the way, that Poppy still thinks I'm Hispanic because every time I run into him, Pablo, consta, bien, 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 Bobby, you too, usted. And I know enough Spanish from I school. did that on PTI one time with Manny Pacquiao. We were interviewing him, and I just started talking to him in Spanish. But to your point, not the worst strategy because the story of me, I guess, is the story of the Philippines which is the story of a country in the Pacific Ocean that is many, many islands, many of which were colonized by Spain. So the Spanish Empire is why I am Pablo Torre. And it's why Tenedor is the same. What a terrible rolling of the R, by the way. I'm already self-conscious about trying to express my Spanish credentials to you. Um, But Tenedor, fork, is the same in Tagalog and in Spanish. A lot of the nouns are the same. A lot of the proper nouns are the same. Pacquiao had no idea what I was saying. He had no idea. I was embarrassing myself. I, I kept doing it. I kept talking to him in Spanish. And it's like P- Portuguese and Spanish have similarities, but I cannot talk to Portuguese people. I understand every seventh word. Yeah, yeah. I'm not surprised that you and Manny Pacquiao were not uh, 
exactly on the same linguistic page. Is that the first time we talked to you was about, I couldn't remember whether it was a story about floating furniture that Tory Hunter oh, was investing right. in or whether yeah. it was a story about spending time in the life of Manny Pacquiao. It was one of those, but without having seen you, I thought to myself when you were on with us, I'm like, oh, look, Sports Illustrated has a, a Hispanic guy. I'm not used to Sports Illustrated having Hispanic guys. And I'm here to tell you that Ancestry.com, if I can crack open the uh, very private nut that is my DNA. I am like five-ish percent Spanish slash Portuguese, I believe, like 10% Chinese. The rest is Philippine islands. What are the cultural imprints, though, that form you as an adult? Like, what are some of the things that are either Hispanic or Filipino or Asian or American? I would say that Spanish in this context is a synonym for me for Roman Catholicism and deeply Catholic heritage. You went to my wedding. There was a church service that you had to leave because your tuxedo was ill-fitting. And that's a whole other story in which you went to the Italian restaurant next door and threw your shirt into the garbage. But the reason you had to do that was because I was at a church because we got married in the church. And my mom was a lector at mass. And so my the Hispanic part of me is the Spanish empire, which is to say it's colonialism, which is to say it's Catholicism. And a lot of the, I've been listening to you talk about, you know, Cuban kids sort of being underneath the skirt of their, of, of their mom, um, always staying at home. That's the story of the Philippines, too. A lot of cousins who live with their folks um, until, you know, 30s-ish. And then on top of all of that and the way that I am mostly perceived because people don't usually have a Chiron when they encounter me in the world is, is Asian American, in which I am flattened into, yeah, this term that is representing billions upon billions of people, the most people you can fit into any single racial category, Asian American. I also am an avatar for all of that. And in truth, I resemble a lot of that, both in terms of my face, but also in terms of the way that I'm wired. How about masculinity, your, uh, the way you project to the world in terms of masculinity, where are the imprints there culturally? I mean, it, it, it's no secret that, and again, <laughs> we can, I, I'm going to preemptively caveat that I know there is a larger power ranking of, of plights, of sufferings, but the Asian American male, Dan, is sort of the last pick in the masculinity draft, broadly speaking, to the point where for some reason, even though we had, I mean, Bruce Lee, I guess, gets drafted into the Asian American category. And I guess that's fair. Jackie Chan always does, even though he's not really American at all. Anyway, the point is, like, despite the martial arts, still, we, we're, we're pretty much at the bottom of that pool. And so I wear, I wear that sort of invisibility and emasculation as my preemptive assumption about what people are assuming about me. But you're also someone that is very comfortable being vulnerable. You're very comfortable in friendships and intimacies speaking about your feelings. It's not like you are, um, you know, draped in some sort of masculine camouflage. I, I would say that I'm really good at that with people who are not in my family. With my family, I am a lot more reticent. Really? Honestly. Yeah. Just, yeah. And what is it? It's just cultural repression? I think a middle child who was always the least talkative, even compared to my older sister and younger brother. 
So they dominate. So you, Yammering Pablo, in family settings, gets dominated by others. I am me and my dad, Pablo Jr. I'm the third. We are easily the two quietest people in any family gathering. Easily. Easily, huh. easily, easily. And um, it's weird when I think about how my job is, in some sense, to professionally emote, to share, to probe into others as well. Because um, I'm not uncomfortable with it, but for some reason, at home, it feels like to do that would be, it, it, it feels like I'm, like I'm fake, because I grew up not doing that. I grew up being the quietest one in our uh, very crowded household. How did it go over when you decided to tell the people in your family that this was the career path you were going to choose? Because every time I talk to a mean or basically anybody breaking into this business from one of the exile or immigrant or foreign communities, the choices on what you're allowed to do professionally are just the same. It's architect, it's lawyer, it's doctor, mm -hmm. it's engineer, it's the sciences, they're the safest, they're the way to, pers to pursue the American dream, not sports writing. So I was the first one in my family born in America. Uh, my sister was two years old when they arrived in 83 from the Philippines to New York City to Manhattan. Um, and I say that because it's important to understand that in some sense, my family moved here for me. So I could be born here. And so my parents are doctors. My dad worked for the VA, um, the Veterans Administration, you know, as a urologist. And he worked at Bellevue Hospital, which is, it wasn't a glamorous private practice. Um, but the point is, I, I got to grow up with a certain amount of like, yeah, my parents are like, they are successful people who decided to press the reset button and start from scratch in some sense. Because? In America, because they wanted their kids to be American. And so the notion that I was going to be a sports writer is absurd. And I think it only recently has my mom realized that I'm doing this full time. Um, like, I'm not going to law school. Medical school fell away. Law school was always... But how did it go over when you decided to buck that trend? Because I remember my father was doing nothing but trying to make sure, and God almighty, I still remember the car he drove to the private school he couldn't afford that had a glove compartment that popped open every time he hit a bump and had... Uh, holes in the floor. My father was doing that so that I would become an engineer. He was doing that because the path he knew that was safest would be to be an engineer. So when I told him that I wanted to write for a living, um, it was something that was met with not silence. He was, he was angry about it. And then came the silence because he'd been working all his life to get me his version of the American dream, which wasn't my version of the American dream. I dealt with it far more um, conflict-aversely. I was always just punting the idea of I will eventually do something else. Um, I was punting, kicking that can down the road. I mean, you have to understand that the only reason I'm doing any of this is because <laughs> I took the LSAT and cared about the LSAT, the law school entrance examination, um, to a degree that was unhealthy. So unhealthy that when I took the LSAT, I effectively had a panic attack and bombed it. And you should understand about me that, like, I am somebody who's always gotten good grades. 
I am somebody who has always been academically an achiever. That was the way that I saw myself first and foremost. When I was in high school, I would look at what the kids who went to good colleges, what they did, I would literally write it down onto loose leaf. They did this, this, and this. I would, I would copy, I would transcribe their yearbook entries. I got to go do this and this and this so I can do that. And I was going to go to law school. And I bombed the LSAT. And what I realized was that I needed... I needed to take a gap year. I needed to do something else because I wasn't going to apply to law schools with this LSAT. Well, what score. happened though? What happened with the panic attack? And what are you what are you saying there? Describe what you're saying is an unhealthy obsession with making sure you did well on the LSAT. I considered the LSAT to be the entire reason why my family came to this country. I wasn't going to be a doctor, but this was my path towards structure and money and reputation and life. And it was a path that many people I knew had, had followed. And if you had come to me in the library where I spent every day for like a year, like endlessly studying, doing practice exams. Confident that you would do well, I imagine, no? Stressed out more than confident. Confident insofar as like, I know I can do this. Stressed out in the sense of like, this is, so this is it. This is it. I can't pay to make the score go away. I can't. So the point is, if literally, if a genie had appeared to me when I was at the library studying for the LSAT, I would have used one of my three wishes on a good LSAT score. And what happened that day? I went to take the test and I got psyched up and it's a blur. I just choked. They didn't go well. Sweaty, all of it, felt it leaving, like the thing of, oh, my heart, all of the undiagnosed panic attack aspects that I have honestly not suffered from since. But that day was all of that. And I realized not long thereafter that I had to do something else. And what I did, because I actually had been doing stuff for fun in college beyond studying and writing a senior thesis about child homicide in America, which is what my, my thesis was about because I wanted to be a lawyer doing like important things. Um, I was writing sports. I was covering like, you know, women's ice hockey and wrestling and baseball and all that stuff. And I was an intern for fun at SI.com, Sports Illustrated's website. But the point is, that was never the thing that I wanted to do or planned to ever do because I was going to take the LSAT. Such an unspeakably shitty job you started at with Sports Illustrated, like a really a failure of a job if you were starting with, I need to get to my dreams and what my parents imagined for me. The job couldn't have paid anything and no. was uh, locked up in so much minutia that it had to be horrifying to you to start there. I was supposed to go to like Harvard Law School or something. And instead, I was starting at the true bottom of the ladder of Again, Sports Illustrated, objectively, grew up a fan reading it, loved it, revered it, but to be paid nothing as a fact checker and to only start that job, Dan, again, so working at the timeline here, the following year after I bombed the LSAT, the literal day after, I took the LSAT a second time because, of course, I had to, I had to retake the test. I spent another year freaking out, panicking, studying, wishing for a genie to come and like rescue me from this hell of like pressure I had self-imposed. Um, but I take the LSAT, I feel better about it. I go to Sports Illustrated, the literal like 
the Monday after the test. And I never left. Spoiler alert. I, my, my, I, the boat I rode in on, this is the least, I, I, I just have to say this, it's the least appropriate usage of your friend Pat Riley's quote. The boat I rode in on, the LSAT, it got burned. <laughs> I, was, I was stranded there. What do you tell your parents when you come home from that LSAT having the panic attack? It just that it, it, I don't think it went well. You know, just meek shame. You know, like I, I if, if, you, if your identity as a student is focused on acing tests and the most important one you essentially bomb, yeah, it, it, they were concerned <laughs> about me. I mean, not in terms of like, oh, you fail, you've embarrassed us and all of those like maybe like cinematically cliched ways. It was more like I think they knew that I was worried. And that was maybe the most worrisome aspect of all of it. What did they think of that job? Fact checker at Sports Illustrated? I mean, it's not a just, real job. You're just you're working in the basement of journalism. I'm crossing out the words, the literal every word I'm crossing out. I am. Yeah, it's it's it. I, I the way I treated it, though, was to immediately. Like to try to start to rise. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in there overeager. I'm like all of the pent up energy and ambition. Dan, <laughs> the, the over, I was a nightmare, the, dude. The overachieving <laughs> fact checker. You're like, you're the ambitious, uh, uh, overzealous, overachieving fact checker. The story you referenced before about the Tory Hunter's floating furniture thing came out of a story I pitched my first year at Sports Illustrated as a fact checker. How would my athletes go broke? The thing that brought me to Billy Corbin's world later on. Uh, he made that 30 for 30 about it broke. I pitched that because I was frantically trying to figure out how to succeed at this. And so in the back burner of my fact-checking duties, I was like reporting out little details about random athletes, just compiling things and pitching it every day. And I was, I must have been so exasperating for these editors who are like, can you please just fact-check this Scott Price story? Stop trying to be Scott Price. Hello, friends. It's Mike, and a lot has changed over the years. One thing that hasn't, Crave Taste Miller Lite. It was the original light beer, and to this day, it is still the best one. Miller Lite has more of the taste that you want and less of the stuff that you don't. I'm so grateful for Miller Lite because it supplements all my good times. It makes good times great times. Whether it be football season, basketball season, or baseball season, in all likelihood, your team is not living up to expectations. Few good moments made better by Miller Lite, and the bad times are made less bad thanks to Miller Lite. Oh, I love you, Miller Lite. I love you because you keep it simple. Undebatable quality. Great taste. Only 96 calories. Times change, but you can always enjoy the great taste of Miller Lite. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com Dan, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. It's funny, though, because I remember a conversation we had um, when you were coming down to Miami to do some shows, and you were ahead of the curve in that in your early 30s, I think you were already doing television. And so I saw that you had gotten on the path that I had been on much earlier and with less writing involved 
than I had to do. I had to do a decade Correct. worth of work for Kornheiser. Like full-on columnist. People don't know this about <laughs> Kornheiser and Wilbon, but they are, between them, beyond being very different, there are very few people that both of them are willing to work with. And I am one, and you are one. And I just remember after you had written, I don't know, five or six articles, telling you with vehemence, because I saw that you were on the same path, get out of writing. Get out of writing right now. You have a better path to some of the things that you want uh, without uh, having to do the noble writing thing of pour yourself into the most challenging thing because it's the most challenging thing and then judge all the television and radio people for choosing the cotton candy instead of the crossword puzzle. You are the person who is single-handedly responsible for convincing me that this profession was a thing that would actually be so much better than the alternate life I would have had had that genie actually appeared? Well, I was giving you, the, the advice I was giving you is, Pablo, you don't have to choose suffering. It doesn't have to be a total suffering that then arrives at some sort of fulfillment. You can have the fulfillment without the suffering. So I love writing. I it took think, me forever to realize, though, that. But but I, I, I told you this once, too. Um, I, I, yes, I'm proudest of having written. A key difference from writing the past participle. I'm most proud of having written. And part of the reason is because I also treated that when you're doing like long form magazine profiles, as you know, and I, by the way, knew you as a writer more than I did as TV and radio guy, because I was actually, I was a literary sports journalist and I would read your bylines and the other stuff, the show, we can talk about the show later, but like, I didn't get the show until I was on the show. Maybe unsurprising to anybody who listened to me sub in for Stugatz early on in like 2014. But the point is, writing was so difficult for me because I cared about it so much because it's where I channeled all of my academic ambitions that it became actually hard for me to like move on from paragraph to paragraph. Like I had to do a thing in Microsoft Word where in order for me, because I would just tinker endlessly with every little thing. Because I was a long form magazine writer who was left alone. I would tinker with every punctuation mark, M dash, I would just get lost in that rabbit hole, and I could only give myself permission to move on if the paragraph, imagine a Microsoft Word document, if the paragraph became rectangular, as if I was playing Tetris inside of the document. If you were to look at my first draft of any story, it would be a bunch of rectangular boxes stacked up on each other because I needed permission that I'd achieve some goal and was okay of to Of symmetry? To of, of symmetry. Yes. The Which sounds nuts, by the way. Well, but it also sounds like a lot of writers I know. Mine wasn't that. But the, the reason, I think you know this, you may not. But the way that I discovered how lonely writing was and the obsessive compulsive sculpting that goes into doing it uh, well or most proudly is when I got to the offices of Pardon the Interruption and saw in a little basement in a Washington studio that those people, not just Wilbon and Kornheiser, but everyone involved with it, all of them being the roots of what this show would one day become, yes. how much fun they were having and how communal it was. And I just left there. I remember leaving there, walking through a snow uh, and, and cold and being like, 
no, I need to be closer to what that felt like with my life. What I'm doing professionally is too lonely. I need, I need laughter, not applause. Laughter was never a North Star for me <laughs> until you, mm-hmm. until I met you and you were this ghost of Christmas future driving a convertible on South Beach. And you would give me these rides home from whenever we were doing the radio show or Highly Questionable. And you'd tell me exactly in those words what you just described. And I wake up every day, okay? This is not a joke. I wake up every day and I am so glad that I failed the test that I thought would define my entire life. It makes sense. What you're describing sounds horrible. And I don't know how many of these experiences you have, but I remember when things felt most wrong more than I remember when they felt most right. And crying at midnight in a Miami Herald bathroom because I was in the scoop business all of a sudden. I had to fight others for news. And I was competing against somebody on the Marlins beat, which at the time, it was the first year of the Marlins, and Major League Baseball was coming to South Florida. And it was whatever that LSAT test was for you. And I was playing basketball games in the little free time I had with my friend and friends and the basketball would hit me in the face because I was so consumed with thinking about the things that I wasn't doing at work. And I just spent the year getting my ass kicked on the news beat because the guy I was competing against had scouts in his wedding. And, and, <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm, I'm calling, you know, hotels know all over, archetype. all over. I don't know how to report. I don't have sources and I'm just calling random hotels to see if the general manager is checked in with any, uh, you know, potential manager candidates because I don't know how to do the job. Well, this is where I am actually curious for you and your ego. What are you most confident in? Because that is the opposite. That's the thing you learned like, oh, shit. Like this is, this is making me feel like I'm taking a test and flop sweating. Where are you confident that you're actually better than most of the industry? Writing. And <laughs> it's because I think I've analyzed this a lot over the years. Uh, it is because if it meets my standard, I know it's good enough. Yes. And my standard, oh, I'd Fine. give it to editors, and I'm like, this isn't going to have to be changed. I'm not even going to have to fight you on very much. And it, it was sort of a recreation of the stuff with my father, because I would turn um, you know, my bosses, whether it was Skipper or Gary Honig, who now works at Metal Lark, uh, some of my mentors, I would turn them into the father figure. I've talked before on I've South, noticed, Beach, South yes, Beach Sessions. I've noticed this in real life and on your podcast. Yeah, I couldn't please my father because he didn't do pleasure. And so whenever I was handing something in to one of these people who were at the top of the industry, if it met my standard, I knew it would meet theirs. I. <laughs> but that's two things that you're describing, though. One is a satisfaction of your personal standard. The other one, is it a, satis- is it a satisfaction of their standard? Are they the same thing? Well, I would just say that I mine is a discerning taste when it comes to writing and when I know I've written well. It's not like I always feel like I've written well, but when I know I have written well, I uh, to me, that's the most immune I am to any doubt. It's not like I'm ever putting anything out into the world, ever. This, this, this uh, I don't know if... Uh, 
you know, I, I, I think I've sharpened here in this industry, on this platform, whatever a confident music producer would have in knowing what a hit song sounds like before presenting it to the public. I've got a pretty good idea when we're speaking in the microphones, whether I'm giving the audience something that will be objectively interesting to the to the average person. But it's nowhere is it more honed than in writing. But uh, so you said something, though, how your taste is essentially you are your taste is validated by your editor's taste, because, of course, you know what good writing sounds like and they are there to just rubber stamp it. Yes, correct. And you know what it's my fear for myself is that I write too much for my editors. I, I like to think that I have good taste. I do. But I am also somebody who, because I think I have poured all of my ambitions into this thing, I am looking for that cosign to the point where my voice, at its most insecure, feels like karaoke. Because I'm doing what I think other people around me like. Well, but you have fewer reps with this than I do, though. Like, you have written less. I write for me. I don't write for the pleasure of my editors. I just know that they are going to be pleased by the time that I am done. But when you ask, you ask me the question, it's, it's the realist confidence that I have, like, to know that something that is subjective that you're putting into the world is good. I don't have that kind of confidence about just about anything else that I do in any walk of life where I, I just know with the conviction of maximum conviction that what I have done is good. I don't know how many people get to feel the pleasure of that, you know, unless they're somewhat delusional. Like, I don't know that a lot of people have that in a number of different categories. And I, I have it in one. Well, okay. So I would say first off that like, yes, the number of reps over time has made me more secure in what my voice is. Although in the back of my head, I'm always like actually looking for faces to validate me. Um, but the second thing is the obvious question now that you've done this whole thing about how this makes you feel confident. Writing makes you feel confident. Why are you not writing? It hurts too much. I don't like visiting the place where I have to go in order to go summon that where what I do now simply feels better. Everything that I do daily with what the expertise accrued over 30 years is just feels better in every respect. What I do daily is not communal. Some people might argue it's got way too many people around it, <laughs> uh, too many people with microphones. Uh, what I do does not require that kind of rigor and effort. Uh, writing to me was rarely light. For as good as I was at writing, I wasn't good at writing funny. Writing funny is the hardest kind of writing, and I could do it occasionally, but I wasn't particularly good at it. So why? It was why, why always a heavy. Think, well, I, well, everything everything that I was doing was more. It, it was heavy. the 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 craft of sculpting um, was more suffering. Because you wanted to be a serious writer, is that the the reason why you didn't? Because on on air, of course, humor is, you know, in nine thousand point font in the word cloud of what people think about when they think of you. 
but writing-wise, you didn't have that confidence. It's not a skill I have, and I would also say for as confident as I am as a writer, I've never written a book, not for real. Like, I wrote, a, you know, a coloring book about the Marlins' first season, but uh, uh, that would be my greatest demon, and the re reason it's my greatest demon, and I think, by the way, and my wife thinks this too, as do the people who care about me most, that once this gets opened, I will... Was, was it Hemingway who said that writing is easy as cutting a vein? Like that many people find it to be a suffering, but that with me being less repressed, me being generally lighter, me being happier, that I will be able to get to a page and not stop on every paragraph and have to sculpt it. Uh, I could, that I could forgive myself and move on, like move on to the next and the next and the next. Like I envy John Grisham's uh, writing discipline where he will write from eight to noon in the morning and he will just write straight through and then he will stop and he will be done with it. I don't think you and I are built that way in terms of uh, the obsessive compulsiveness required for sculpting that I don't like to visit. It's unpleasant. But it sounds like in the in your mind's eye, the book that you are watching yourself write is a serious one. It is not a funny one. It is a serious one. It's just not light in the lift. It's not sitting down to a computer and just clack, clack, clacking because I'm good with words and putting it away. It's stopping on every sentence and being like, this word is in the wrong place. I got to go back here. I got to move this word. This isn't a bad. And then rereading the first three paragraphs yes. again oh, and again yeah. and again and again, instead of just moving on. And, and, and man, there's a metaphor for life in there somewhere uh, yeah, about a, just a little bit. like forgive yourself, bit. forgive yourself and move on. Like that's not the way my process has ever been. A friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, Boog Shambi, says this to me when I talk to him um, and I confess some of these vulnerabilities. He says, be kind to yourself. Oh, but it took him forever to learn that. Uh, I've had well, those conversations a, know, with but, him. But it's, it's the right advice because to us, we are the editor before the piece gets to the editor. You mentioned a genie before. I've told my therapist this. And a number of different times. If there's one thing I could leave here with, one gift, one tool I could leave here with, it would be be kind to yourself. Be, be more gentle to yourself. You don't have to have this withering self-assessment that, that meets some, you know, incredible standard that's not reasonable. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. As Metal Arc Media continues to grow as a content studio and as a multimedia company, we strive to hire only the best and the most qualified candidates. Thankfully, with LinkedIn, they've made it easy for us to find them. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all of that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of the small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash prep. That's linkedin.com slash prep to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. My mom wants me to write a book. She always reminds me that I am still probably... <laughs> You're like, still failing. You're still you're still not doing the noble arts of suffering with uh, 
with creation. You're over here Imagine. farting on television. Um, What's yes. that dumbass show you go down there and do in Miami where you just sit here and you, you talk about Instagram and nonsense? It, it's, it's the thing that I still... I don't have... I, I told you that I wake up every morning grateful for living this sliding doors life, for failure being the key to success beyond my wildest dreams. Truly, that's the story of how I got here in so many words. But what I think about, what I'm enticed by is like, was I doing some important shit in that other universe? <laughs> was I, I talk about this with Dominique a lot. Like Dominique, I think, by the way, should run for president at some point or he's at least an, senator. He's an impressive human being. He should being. just do it and just like stop dicking around and like just save the Republic. But I, and we joke about this with ourselves, like on some level, I also am like, should I like be a Supreme Court justice or so, instead of this, which is not to say that I know that I would be or that I'm smart enough or anything like that. I'm not presuming that it Should would be. Should you be doing something more pur purposeful that has more worth in it? I would have been pouring my ambition into that. And what you found, what you encountered on my trips to South Beach is a person who was pouring his ambitions into one thing. And you realized actually, as this ghost of Christmas future, you should pour it into this thing because it'll be more fun, more money, all of that stuff. And I did. And I took your advice. But what would have happened if I did the other, other thing? That's where I'm like, oh, yeah, my mom probably is realizing that you came to this country for me to fart on television. And I'm like, mom, quality of life, unbeatable bargain. But you can take it. You can try to change the republic with noble pursuits and fail, or you can try to make yourself happy, which seems like a noble pursuit to me. And that's where I do think that, like, I am opting in to being kinder to myself on that front. And, dude, it's just <laughs> – I cannot express to you what a revelation it was for me to show I, – so I didn't listen to your show before I was on your show, really. I had heard it. I'd been a guest on it maybe once or twice, the radio show. But I not from Miami. Again, I was, like, shedding the exoskeleton of, like, literary sports writer – and so when I came in and realized, like, what the f*** you guys were doing, it changed my perspective on what this job could be. And today, when we did the show, or, or, I'm just like, the fact that this moves so quickly, that it's so light and easy and fun, I, it's, it's just, it literally was not dreamable for my parents that this would actually be more worthwhile, more lucrative, more anything than the that was pain. There's so, not a lot that I'm prouder of than that, than the idea that you could alter the form slightly enough that others would gravitate toward it and then get permission uh, to be happier because it's a consistent theme with the people who get our show from the inside, you or Amin. I remember this happened with Amin. Uh, Jorge Sedano, who is stereotypically Cuban and knows me and my family very well, so much so that Sedano will call my mother every single week just to talk to her. Um, <laughs> he told me uh, very early on, he said, Amin Al Hassan, of all the people in the company, get him down to what you're doing, get him around what you're doing because he needs it, you need him, et cetera, et cetera. And Amin gets to ESPN from front office sports and is immediately looking around the studio where he is because they have him going out and standing on a particular mark 
And it means like, wait a minute, I want to color outside of the lines a little bit. Why do I have to do this according to format and regimen? Why isn't this more like the playground? So that the the idea that we got to ESPN and that Skipper empowered us with an ability to lure people like you who wanted to do it a little differently, uh, it's a hugely flattering compliment uh, to be able to you know, blaze that trail for people who needed it blazed. I, I think that's, that is what I think you should be most confident in, by the way, is being a person who for others is living a life that they did not have the confidence to design for themselves. Like you did it, man. Like that's the thing about all, all of this. All, the reason why I, I went from like, full-time Disney employee who they wanted to do the shows that I was doing. You know, all of that. I, I have nothing bad to say about ESPN on that front. They, they believed in me. They wanted me. The fact that I went from that to working for you, going from inside of the orca suit, talking to Jesse Ventura in like my second show about 9-11 conspiracy theories to X number of years later, less than 10 years later, working for and with you and giving up health care while I have a three-year-old is nuts. Like, that is some genie bullshit. Like, who could have ever thought that? Well, I'm not sure I thought it. I should tell the audience who doesn't know that you were the ordained minister uh, at my wedding, a choice made by my wife, who isn't terribly trusting of... um, outsiders uh not by me that was not a choice made by me and that uh i I agreed with it i wasn't uh disagreeing but i think it's a choice that she made uh herself and she she made it for me and (laughs) but she did she did she, she trusted you you have been clear about that this was valerie's call um, yeah, well, she calls our wedding, yeah, party for Dan's friends. Um, but you uh, getting in there was something that not a lot of people have done. But I could not have fathomed this moment or where it, we we are now. Back going back four years, three years through some of the conversations where at the end, when I saw that I was being squeezed at ESPN and I saw that there were, Bomani had left highly questionable. So we had seats next to my father that were available, but a certain number of days. And we had a whole lot of people at ESPN who were in peril because they were cutting salaries in half. And so you and Sarah and Katie and, and well, me, Mina less so because Mina had opportunities. But this was early on, though. This was early on, Dan. Like, you were giving us an identity as like, oh, you're the people who do this thing. Oh, but I'm not talking about then, right? I'm not talking about all of you. That was weird. Dating on television was weird. Dating co-hosts on television as a construct was strange because I didn't know how to work. We all learned how to do that together without having, you know, a natural chemistry at the start. But I'm talking about when I knew it was about to end at ESPN or that I didn't have very many days left. And I was just trying to protect not just myself, but that seat next to us that would have protected a lot of uh, salaries and a lot of careers. Mm. You were scared 
back then. I recall coming back from my honeymoon and you were scared uh, and not only scared, but scared enough that 10 minutes into a conversation, you informed me that you and your wife were pregnant uh, after we covered 10 minutes of work related stuff before that. And to imagine to imagine this from there is damn near impossible because the safety net of health insurance matters the safety net of disney and and the protection of employer it's one of the reasons i admire my brother's success so much because he did it without a safety net he did it without a, a sugar daddy that that just protects you at every turn you know selling art out of the back of his car i uh it, it, it's important to note in the chronology of things that when violet is born it is February 24th, 2020. When Violet is born, I am, in, I am in the hospital room and Liz is physically giving birth and the doctor and the nurses are there. And in my mind, what I'm realizing in a very out of body way is that, oh no, my, my brain is not fully devoted to the birth of my child. My brain is also sharing space with the fact that High Noon just got canceled and has just been announced as canceled on the day I was in the hospital. So the imprinting, like, why did I take 10 minutes to mention that Violet was going to be a thing? <laughs> it's because the entire time I was worried about what the f am I going to do about the fact that this, this person is going to rely on me in ways that I am clearly not confident in my ability to Oh, so to they provide. were together. Like, it's not just the responsibility of fatherhood and all that entails minus the work stuff. You're talking about the responsibility of being able to provide for that child was something that was also in play for you. It was the two things. It was, wow, this is not this magical panacea that's going to wipe away all of my so anxieties. So it wasn't joy in the, in the hospital room? There it was, was fear? It, or? Was, it was, I would say, overwhelmingly, I was, it was absolutely joyous, but with that real like layer, it was concern in the costume of joy or vice versa. Like the real thing I was feeling was I cannot believe I had the thought to myself as if I was watching a documentary about my life. I cannot believe that I'm always going to remember this moment with this thought in my head. And they were born together. My insecurity was born alongside my daughter. And I realized, oh, this is not going to magically make me into a fully present dad because clearly I failed the test from as soon as I could possibly take it, that one. I'm thinking about work while and not being present for this shit. Like what an ass. And the second thing is why? Why could I not be so present? And it was because I was already concerned about how am I going to do right by, by her. It's funny you mention all of this though, because I haven't talked to you about it, nor have I thought about it. Like your your coming here is something that's exciting and wonderful, and I'm I just feel thrilled that I'm able to do this with my friends in general. But I don't know why you're here. I haven't like I do, but I don't. People I People should know that. People should know that. I did not join this company because you and I were plotting hour to hour, how am I going to be extracted from ESPN? That's not how this happened. What happened is I, after showing up in an orca suit and then beyond, 
became a super fan of this show, of, of your show. And I did not stop listening. And in the back of my mind was always, alongside existential dread and how to provide, was this notion of like, in an uncertain future in which we don't know which icebergs will be remaining, I want to work with people that I love that seem to have figured something out about how this could be. I wanted to be part of your family. That was fundamentally the decision that I made was, yes, great. I can do some TV stuff. Stay with ESPN. Perfect. Always love that. I, I, I don't want to minimize that. That is so important to me. It really is. But in terms of like, how am I self-identifying now? I didn't need you to explain that to me because you had, you had begun explaining that to me back in 2014. Like, I didn't need you to retell me those conversations because I heard them the first time and I did not forget. Today's episode is powered by Venmo and PayPal. Look, no matter how your favorite team did this season, there's still one way to feel like a winner. And that's with Venmo and PayPal. That's because you can choose to use Venmo or PayPal to add money to DraftKings in a few taps. You can even transfer your balance if you have one. So the next time you get paid back for dinner, drinks, or tickets to the game, you've got the option to put the money right back into your DraftKings account. Hundreds of millions of people use Venmo and PayPal already, and there's never been a better time to join them. Don't have a Venmo or PayPal account yet? Don't sweat it. Choose your way to pay and download the app to get started. Venmo and PayPal are not valid deposit withdrawal methods in Connecticut or Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It's funny because I don't view myself, Valerie talks to me about this sometimes, I just don't view myself with uh, the same prism that others view me. So the idea that you or anybody else would think, well, Dan's got it figured out. It's just not a space that I live in at all. Like when you ask me what I'm confident about, that is not it. I'm, it's not that it's it's filled with doubt either, but the idea that Dan will figure it out when the industry is changing, when the icebergs are are melting, when you know ESPN is firing people, and at the end at ESPN, it seemed pretty obvious that uh, people like you and me weren't going to have a space there, and that's not something I ever. Imagine. I thought I was going to be working at ESPN for the remainder of the time because I didn't expect the country and the, the, to change and the company to change and the country's president to change and the company's president to change. I just thought I would be there. Well, hell, I was told by the previous people there who weren't Skipper. Yeah, you'll have a job here for as long right. as you want to have oh, a job oh, here. Oh, oh, I only, until this moment... And the degree to which you have figured it all out, um, believe me, I'm like knocking on the backdrop here, like making sure, okay, this is a solid wall. Yep, this is real. Like this shit is real. This microphone works. But for me, I've only felt confident in terms of like job security by working for a big company, for a giant corporation somewhere, Sports Illustrated and then ESPN. Like, believe me, the whole notion of like, what, again, what if you, okay, again, the genie visits me. I'm in the hospital. Uh, Violet is being born and the genie visits me and says what do you want I might have wished to work for ESPN for the rest of my life because the security of, it. of the security of it because it felt safe because I had replaced in my brain law school in that trajectory that I had like sketched out and studied I'd replaced it with this other trajectory that I had sketched out and studied and I've approached this like a student man 
I got to know you. I got to know Tony Kornheiser. I got to know Eric Rideholm. By the way, all people who became genuine friends, but understand that like this started with me trying to understand, like, how can I make a life for myself that won't embarrass the fact that my parents traveled from the furthest possible point on planet Earth to come here and make this worth their sacrifice. And certainly, like, TV helps. The markers of fame, celebrity, money, that all helps. But for me, like, what the f*** am I doing? <laughs> like, in a real way, what the fuck is my job? What is my calling in life? What am I here to do? I realized that what you had figured out here is a lot closer to what I actually, blank piece of paper, wanted to do than it was at ESPN. It's strange to think that we are well positioned in a totally changing media climate to be a stable and secure thing. That that the thing that you think about me becomes so, but not because I have things figured out, but because we did a thing with my friends because I was insistent about this part of it. If I'm going to build a company that allows my friends or tries to get all of my friends and family here to their dream jobs, um, what they have to do is make sure that we are insulated and protected. And ultimately, I view this, I mean, it's utopian, right? I don't know whether, and I've been told it's very hard to do, building a company that actually cares, building a corporate structure that cares about its people. But we are in a very good position to be able to create that now. But the last two years have, uh, because I'm hard on myself, and because there's a lot I don't know about entrepreneurialism and next yes. to nothing I know about startups, I have not viewed failure as learning. I've just sort of absorbed it as failure. No, I, I feel like I got to come in at a time that is like – it's funny, Dan, because like, I don't know how much you feel this, but like I've been – I was here last week. I'm here all of this week. The mood around your building – your new studio, your staff is one of joy. And like, I didn't have to suffer for the first two years the way that you, you all did, having to start from scratch. Well, I thought, I thought like seven or eight of you were going to come with me. Well, uh, this, I is, thought, this is I, where, I, you know, the corporate teeth are pretty nice teeth. You know, it's, uh -huh. it's a nice thing to suck a lot. It's, it is, it is, it, I ended up, what, I, I was, the thing that I remember very vividly was Mike Schur after freedom, making the joke about how, um, you know, essentially Jess and Witty were me and Mina, like, rebooted. And that uh, Witty had this sounder, and he had these highfalutin words and stuff, and somewhere Pablo Torre is jealous. And I was. Seriously, I was. I was actively jealous that I couldn't have fun with you guys doing that. And coming in now having gotten like years of reps making, and this is the other thing, right? Like I was the guy who wrote six magazine pieces. I've spent the last three years making a thousand episodes of stuff. ESPN daily episodes. Well, you've become a hard episodes. worker. I think I've called you lazy for a while. Yeah, I have, like I have spent the last three years <laughs> proving that I am still the over ambitious fact checker trying to do a lot beyond his station. And I come to you now like, and it's just like, and I say this 
with all of the potential naivete of somebody, of, of an immigrant, of a new person in a new country, in a new land. But I'm like, I feel lighter. It's fun. People are laughing. It's ridiculous that you're in a nicer hotel than you were before taping this fancy new studio operation. Like, it's the thing that I actually want an answer to from you because I think this speaks to like what I think you your legacy ultimately is is that you actually like you helped out younger people you helped out people who could be coming for your coming for everything you built trying to take it from you right we've worked on shows that are full of people who have competitive hyper competitive mamba mentalities they don't want to share you share sharing is a thing that you do better than I think anybody else I've ever met. And why weren't you more cutthroat? Seriously, like, why were you not more cutthroat insofar as you're willing to, like, elevate people who could economically, objectively, professionally speaking, be just risks to the stuff that you fought to build? I I just never, I, I was shocked to discover that this shit was real all the way through to the point where I'm, like, working and getting paid by your company like it, it, i i just it's just not a thing that people should expect i don't know that i've thought about that question before i know that this business and i don't even mean television which is filled with all its own vanities and insecurities but uh i saw in this business when columnists got those supreme court justice jobs that had tenure I saw some in New York who were really bad to other people in a way that I wouldn't have wanted to be. And I've talked with Greg Cody about this. I passed Greg Cody at the Miami Herald and he held my hand as I was doing it with uh, with great grace. And so I, I learned from others what I did and didn't want. And when you talk about what you're talking about there, I had this conversation the other day with my brother. I've been saying for a long time that the greatest professional blessing of my life has been uh, being able to grow old with my father on television and have a different relationship with him in adulthood that I had with him as a child. And it is an enormous blessing. But I think I'm going to have to change that answer now because I was uh, we're right across from the Freedom Tower over here uh in this hotel and for the people who don't know the history of the freedom tower just know that uh, cubans arrived here seeking a certain thing my parents arrived here seeking a certain thing and they got it for me and so to own my own shit to have this be ours and to have joy be something that gets to be shared i've said for a long time that climbing mountains and seeing the view that uh, the best mountaintop views are those that are shared so if i'm going to if i'm going to have more joy in my life it seems uh, pretty stupid to be selfish about that like you would want to share that with the people that you care about so that it's not lonely so that it's something that uh, that can be enjoyed together. Like whoever, whenever it is that people in entertainment are on a stage overjoyed because they've won some award and they just start thanking too many people to count. 
um, like there are too many people to count here on who it is and how it is that they lifted me up to and including an audience that connects with us from there, Pablo, because, yeah, you can like what we do and everything, but the idea that you have on your streaming services, any number of hours you can spend doing anything and that our audience, just uncommonly loyal, weirdly loyal, connects from in there because they're like, well, wait a minute, I'd like to have a boss like that. I'd like to work with unlimited time off and very few rules. Who doesn't want to work like that? It stops being work. And so I would like for people, just like I told you a long time ago after you'd written five or six articles, get out of that. That's not, that's not fun. I would say I w I've said it to, in some form, to everyone here through behavior, like, no, let's do this together so that it can be a fun thing, so that the joy can be something that's shared. you got to you got to think the joy shared is better than joy alone, right? Well, that's, I, I think you should An not. orgy is better than masturbation, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Unless you're really good at masturbating. Right. In which case, it's like, guys, clear out. ISO. <laughs> so We're running ISO here. Kobe mama mentality. <laughs> You, you, uh, you, I don't know. I'm an orgy guy, Dan. That's what I realized here today. I thought I was a masturbator. I'm an orgy guy. I don't know your family story. I don't know how they. This is a good segue. How they got over here. I'm trying to take it from the sophomoric to something more meaningful. And off of me as an ex excellent I've, deflection no, I've advice. I've noticed that as well. We're like, we're getting close to you. Um, yeah, admitting some about how you're special in ways that you're fundamentally uncomfortable admitting because I think you probably have some of what I have, which is the preference to defer so that maybe in the process of deferring subconsciously, our specialness is even brighter. Do you ever think that way? Well, I do think that <laughs> something else I'm good at is creating environments where people can be themselves, creating environments that are... I mean, that's been learned here, but you dragged me through a dark time. You dragged me through a bad experience. I was at a low point, and your group provided a medicine for me that I assume is that laughter, but can just make me feel less lonely with my grief or whatever. The number of people, okay. Now, keep in mind, I don't know. I don't want to stereotype about caveman sports base or repressed male feelings, but for people to go out of their way to say to me again and again some version of that, it's an uncommon connection to have with your entertainment. I don't think there are a whole lot of entities producing uh, that kind of... Uh, uh, what would it be? Serotonin, something in the brain that makes for a connection that is a bit addictive. Yeah, I mean, like neurologically speaking, there is like a mirror neuron stuff happening. A mirror neuron is when you're like watching someone get a paper cut and you feel the paper cut. Right. Because your brain is perceiving something that's happening to someone else the way that you might if it was happening to you. And I think your show is full of mirror neurons. It is people who are watching people get through something while they are getting through something. It is the opposite. But it is, it is from a place of, yeah, I'm here because I love sports, <laughs> but it's not why I'm staying. I'm staying because I love these people. And that, to me, is... Or the feeling that they produce for me. Or the feeling. And those feelings are 
in my perhaps naive brain, a better business model. <laughs> then let me serve you sports wherever you can get them the best way I can with these takes. It's like, there's so much of engineering, right? Like, and I feel this coming up with the show that I want to make and how I want to make it feel like it has the DNA of, of, and, and the spirit of yours, like in a real way, like I want to be the neighbor to this house. I don't want to be off across the country. I want to be the neighbor grown out of this, a wing of this bizarre estate. Because so much of the engineering of this business comes from a place of like attention manipulation and trying to engineer habits. And it comes from the artificial and you start the other way. You start from like what is inside and people feel that. I felt it. That's what, that's what drew me to this. When I question the self worth of what it is that we're doing around here because I'm 54 years old and it can be silly. The answer that is most soothing on important work that you can be doing is that you're touching people from there with what it is that you're creating daily. I don't know necessarily what everyone seeks with whatever quote unquote art makes it seem too highfalutin, but I don't know that I can have a greater compliment than for people to be moved, connected to this thing in a way that makes them feel better daily, that makes their life uh, one fraction of a centimeter better than it was. Like that makes it something that will, will be or can be meaningful even though it's silly. What's the closest you ever came to taking this thing out of Miami? I never have, really. Everyone gave me the advice of going to L.A. or New York. They said that it could not be done in, in Miami. And um, I just never considered leaving Miami. It's not... It, I, I did, I very much made ESPN come to us because Skipper has said before that I refused. To, he was trying to hire me because I was the Latin columnist. He went all around the country looking for Latin representation, which ESPN still fails at. And there weren't a lot of names coming back. And for eight or nine years, I was my agent's worst client because I simply refused uh, to do it that way. I didn't want to move away from uh, my roots or my family. I didn't want to do it. Uh, Billy Corbin and I have talked about this because doing it in Miami is a little bit harder than doing it anywhere else. Those guys would have had success seven or eight years earlier if they had moved out of, of Miami because it's, uh, it's just a different place. I didn't understand it at the time, right? I didn't, when it was being, when the advice I was getting was you got to go to New York or Los Angeles to be with those people, I'm, I, I kept asking, well, why? Why does it have to be that way? But I wasn't thinking. Uh, Stugatz and Mike Ryan had to, like, talk me into some of the steps that we have taken that represent progress because I didn't want like to what? grow too much. Like what's the thing that well, they I, I wanted you to on. stay in the afternoons. I didn't want to replace Colin Cowherd. I didn't want to work at ten o'clock in the morning. I like the vibe of afternoons and afternoon radio better. And I would have been uh, satiated, I think, being well. Keep in mind, I was thinking that 
drive time radio would last forever. <laughs> so I, I mean, I would be, I, I would have been a dinosaur put out to pasture yeah, because I didn't see yeah, my yeah. blind spots. But I, I think when people think that I have uh, things figured out, uh, they lose sight of the thousands of things that had to happen that I didn't have any control over, that didn't have anything to do with formula or me understanding, that had nothing to do with design, that had to do with um, happenstance born of follow your heart from the beginning. Follow your heart from high school when you're telling your dad, no, dad, I'm not going to engineer. Like that's I like making fun of my friends in the high school newspaper. I like writing about them in the high school newspaper. And my English teachers tell me I'm good at this. This is a place where I'm getting some affirmation, unlike Same. any no, in high I, school. I, I relate to this completely. No, the whole like... Oh, wait a minute. What if my gift is in writing, which is to say communication, which is to say making people feel something? Like, what if that's what I can do? And then realizing, well, there's a job where I can do that? <laughs> well, I wonder how many people are trapped in arc. Well, I get a lot, man. A lot, dude. I get, people I, come to me all the time and they're like, I want to do what you do. Doctors and, I, and lawyers. Oh, of course. A lawyer, by the way. Like, I would have been so unhappy as an engineer. So okay, unhappy. so I want I want you to describe what that alternate Dan is. He's living in Wisconsin and he's eating himself to death, which might be this Dan <laughs> as well. But living in Miami, no, he's I mean, yeah, deeply unhappy and and having confined to the rigidities of what your parents wanted for you as opposed to real freedom, what you wanted for you, like uh, an. I didn't have the introspection that you needed to have, and, and I don't know how many of us do, to make the life decisions that we're asked to make in college about what our next 30 years are going to be like. I, I feel the more I talk to you about this here, the more I realize that certainly the immigrant slash exile, in your case, experience, um, what that really means is for kids, for the kids of those people, it's 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 a conditioning to outsource happiness. My vision of happiness is what makes my parents proud. It's what justifies their sacrifice. It's what resembles the version of the American dream that we had been sold before getting here. And again, like what you did is tug on my ear to be like, but what if your happiness was actually your happiness? Well, I'm happy you're here, buddy, and I think that this company is going to be the things that you think it is. I hope that this company is the thing that uh, you believe it will be for Violet, for your future, because uh, I, I do believe in the things you believe in, and I believe we are building them. So I'm thrilled that you're here with us, even though a segment of the uh, audience is already tired of all the polysyllabic things you do uh, that Stugatz doesn't understand around here. It's going to be a great orgy, man. <laughs> now I've got Stugatz wandering around nude, <laughs> trying to thrust his way into everything. Eyes wide shut mask. Okay. This has gotten unpleasant and uncomfortable. Say goodbye to the people. Love you, Dan. I'm going to do it like a mean does it. Uh, <laughs> Hello, friends. It's Mike, and a lot has changed over the years. One thing that hasn't, great taste in Miller Lite. 
It was the original light beer, and to this day, it is still the best one. Miller Lite has more of the taste that you want and less of the stuff that you don't. I'm so grateful for Miller Lite because it supplements all my good times. It makes good times great times. Whether it be football season, basketball season, or baseball season, in all likelihood, your team is not living up to expectations. A few good moments made better by Miller Lite, and the bad times are made less bad thanks to Miller Lite. Oh, I love you, Miller Lite. I love you because you keep it simple. Undebatable quality. Great taste. Only 96 calories. Times change, but you can always enjoy the great taste of Miller Lite. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com Dan, where you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around 200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. 